this suffering, like we, we talk about what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. That's a, you know, big motivational speech that people like to drop. But Yvonne's just asking, well, so what? You know, if it, if it needs to happen in the first place in order to make you stronger, then being stronger isn't worth it. He asks Alyosha, who's this super faithful novice, and he asks him, if you're creating a world, you had to create it upon the tears of that one child, would yeah. you do it? And Alyosha, this, this faithful kid, says, no, I wouldn't. Faith can't reconcile it. And I know with the argument, you know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. You know, it's all justified in the end. Some duster will say perhaps that the child would have grown up and sinned. But you see, he didn't grow up. He was torn to pieces by the dogs at eight years old. So to say we suffer so we can get better, he didn't get better. He died. It's just incomprehensible. Hi, everyone. In today's recording, I'll chat with Elizabeth and Liam about Dostoevsky's The Grand Inquisitor. This will be the first of two recordings about this text, which, as you know, is an excerpt from Dostoevsky's longer novel, The Brothers Karamazov. Today's quote of the day is from Nietzsche, whose thinking powerfully influenced Dostoevsky. It's a slightly long quote, and it comes from an early essay by Nietzsche called The Uses and Abuses of History. I'm reading this quote because I think it does a great job articulating One of the arguments that Dostoevsky makes not only in this text, but also, as we heard last time in Notes from Underground, the problem of reason and the ways in which reason or knowledge or higher consciousness can get in the way of a productive life. The Grand Inquisitor makes many extremely rational arguments, but as we see Father Zosima arguing afterwards, and as we heard from the Underground Man earlier, reason is only one-twentieth of what we as humans are. And sometimes to live a quote-unquote whole life can require a kind of necessary and productive forgetting. So this is what Nietzsche says. Observe the herd which is grazing beside you. It does not know what yesterday or today is. It springs around, eats, rests, digests, jumps up again, and so from morning to night and from day to day, with its likes and dislikes closely tied to the peg of the moment. To witness this is hard for man, because he boasts to himself that his human race is better than the beast, and yet looks with jealousy at its happiness. For the man says, I remember, and envies the beast, which immediately forgets and sees each moment really perish, sink back in cloud and night, and vanish forever. Thus it moves him, as if he remembered a lost paradise, to see the grazing herd, or something more closely familiar, the child, which does not yet have a past to deny, and plays in blissful blindness between the fences of the past and the future. Happiness becomes happiness in the same way, through forgetting. The person who cannot set himself down on the crests of the moment, forgetting everything from the past, will never know what happiness is. It is generally completely impossible to live without forgetting. There is a degree of insomnia, of rumination, of the historical sense, through which living comes to harm, and finally is destroyed, whether it is a person or a people or a culture. And for one example of a person who comes to harm through his over-rumination, that person being Ivan Karamazov, and for a discussion of a whole host of other provocative issues, such as the nature of suffering, the source of evil, the existence of God, let's go into this chat about the first part of The Grand Inquisitor with Liam and Elizabeth.
Hi, Liam. Hello. How are you? Oh, I am right dandy. How about you? I'm doing good. Terrific. And here's Elizabeth. How are you, Elizabeth? Doing well. How are you? Good. We're only going to be covering the first, it's not necessarily half, but the pro and contra section of the Grand Inquisitor. The controversial atheistic arguments that Yvonne puts forth, both his catalog of human suffering and his quote-unquote poem. It's not really a poem, his, his description of his poem, The Grand Inquisitor. We three today in this chat, we are only going to be focusing on Yvonne's arguments. And Yvonne has become... Atheist isn't the word, because he, as we as we will discover, he doesn't reject the idea of God's existence. He just doesn't think that suffering justifies God or heaven or anything that God says that he's going to do. Um, we're only going to be emphasizing Yvonne's arguments, and they're dark and, I suppose, nihilistic. I think we owe it to Dostoevsky and these arguments to take them seriously. Dostoevsky is on record as saying that he wants to put forth the most persuasive argument that he can think of against Christian theology. And I think he is as successful at this as anyone that I've ever read. I think these arguments are so, some of these arguments are so persuasive that to ignore them would be a mistake, a dangerous mistake. So we have to take them seriously. Taking them seriously will mean that the Zasima's quote unquote refutation that follows will be even more well-founded. So I hope that makes sense. Let's start with this first question. Why does Dostoevsky set this task for himself? He himself is, I mean, he very famously says something like, this isn't going to be exact quote, but if the truth and Christ ever contradict each other, I will choose Christ. He's basically on record as saying that. Extremely devout Christian. Why then would he spend so much mental energy putting forth such a persuasive counter argument? What is the purpose of this exercise, do you think? I know in some of the quotes I've read by Dostoevsky, he describes his faith as coming from a crucible of doubt. That's where we get that phrase. He doesn't get his faith because he just has faith. These are arguments I think he's had these in his head. These are the things he's worked through to get to that faith. So to present it, to present it in a book like this, he's explaining what you can overcome and still find faith. Yeah, to, it, it makes the faith stronger. You know, Milton famously said, an untried virtue is no virtue. I, th I think what Dostoevsky is doing here is he's he's allowing himself to question, to recognize that fr from a logical perspective, a lot of what is claimed about God and about religion doesn't necessarily make sense. And he's, he's pointing that out to people as well. And I, I think, yeah, it comes down to what you said, that it is, is a virtue really a virtue if you don't consider it and weigh its alternatives? But there is a difference between doubting and asking questions. And what he's doing here is asking questions. Maybe he's doing it by presenting the facade of somebody who's doubting. But to him, all he's doing is asking those questions that were on his mind. And then in the future, you know, we're not talking about it, but there's somebody there that presents the answers that Dostoevsky came up with to his own questions. Yes, and these answers, as we'll see in this other podcast, they're not they're not point by point logical refutations. They're an embodied kind of counter response, a life that is is put in opposition to Yvonne's claims. Let's get it. Let's get into some of Yvonne's claims. Just as we saw in Notes from Underground, Dostoevsky ignores or quickly passes over the obvious. Yvonne doesn't doubt that God exists. We all might doubt that God exists from time to time. Yvonne presents us with a logical argument that is much more provocative than this. So let's start by going to page two. Um, and he says to his brother, Alyosha, Alyosha is a, an apprentice monk. On page two, Yvonne says to Alyosha, I have a longing for life and I go on living in spite of logic. This sounds very much like the underground man. So Logically, Yvonne has convinced himself that there's no reason to live. We're going to go through some of those reasons. But then he says this wonderful thing. Though I may not believe in the order of the universe, yet I love the sticky little leaves as they open in spring. I love the blue sky. I love some people whom one loves, you know, sometimes without knowing why. And then later on the top of page three, he says, I love the sticky leaves again, you know, in the blue sky. So logically, he knows life is not worth living. And yet he loves certain specific elements about it too much to commit suicide yet. 
what exactly is Ivan's logical argument against life? He says, I go on living despite logic. What does he mean? I think the main point that Yvonne drills at here and the, the main logic behind life not being worth it, he's, he spends all this time talking about the the suffering and he, he mainly yeah. focuses on the suffering of children. That's right. Uh, he he gives, gives all these stories about children being being tortured either by their mothers or by occupying forces and he asks like you know is is there anything that can possibly make this worth it i yeah. i love on page 16 he he makes the statement i want to forgive i want to embrace i don't want more suffering and if the sufferings of children go to swell the sum of sufferings which was necessary to pay for truth then I protest that the truth is not worth such a price. Yeah. I don't want the mother to embrace the oppressor who threw her son to the dogs. She dare not forgive him. Let her forgive him for herself, if she will. Let her forgive the torturer for the immeasurable suffering of her mother's heart. But the sufferings of her tortured child, she has no right to forgive. And I, I, I think that's that's the main point that Yvonne is focusing on here, that there, the this this suffering, like we we talk about, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. That's a you know big big thing, big motivational speech that people like to drop. But Yvonne's just asking, well, so what? You know, if it, if it needs to happen in the first place in order to make you stronger, then being stronger isn't worth it. And it might make it. So there's a kind of macro. I want to hear from Elizabeth too, but just to riff off of your comment for a second, Liam. There's a macroscopic and a microscopic tension here. On a macroscopic layer, it's all well and good to say, oh, well, this will all work itself out in the end, or God will wipe the tears of these children. You know, he will wipe their eyes dry from tears. Uh, this is the price that must be paid for truth, etc., or harmony. Later down, just a, a few sentences down from where you stopped reading, Liam, too high a price is asked for harmony, Yvonne says. So even if you say, uh, yeah, on a macroscopic level, it's fine. He's He is looking at the microscopic level. He's looking at that one child. That one child's suffering is so intense and so profound and so pointless that it doesn't compensate for any macro level gain. It just doesn't. Yeah, I think, I mean, he asks Alyosha, who's this super faithful novice, and he asks him, if you're creating a world, you had to created upon the tears of that one child, would yeah. you do it? Alyosha, this this faithful kid, says, no, I wouldn't. Yeah. Just faith can't reconcile it. And I know with the argument, you know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. You know, it's all justified in the end. <laughs> like you get better for going through trials or whatever. Yvonne says, and if it's really true that they must share a responsibility for all their father's crimes, like if this is a justification for why kids suffer, uh -huh. such a truth is not of this world and it's beyond my comprehension uh -huh. some jester will say perhaps that the child would have grown up and sinned but you see he didn't grow up he was torn to pieces by the dogs at eight years old so to say we suffer so we can get better he didn't get better he died Sorry. it's just incomprehensible i love the analogy that yvonne makes of the euclidean and non-euclidean geometry it's non-euclidean geometry it's just not understandable by people well elaborate what do you mean so Yvonne says, we were made with these earthly minds to understand three dimensions, to understand that parallel lines never meet. Yeah. So with non-Euclidean geometry, that's beyond anything I can understand. And what world can parallel minds meet? And what world can space yeah. be like that if we live in a world of three dimensions? So, I mean, yeah. I can't understand that. How am I supposed to understand the suffering of children when there is no possible way for us to understand that? And let's put a little bit of more texture to the suffering of children. Talking about the suffering of children in the abstract is one thing, but Yvonne keeps a diary of newspaper clippings. And the stories in these newspapers are based on true stories that Dostoevsky himself read about. We, we've already alluded to the one, this boy being, that this man setting his pack of dogs on this eight-year-old boy and, and the dogs tearing him apart. The one that I have never forgotten. I was assigned this book as an undergrad at BYU. And the example that I think about constantly, this is a true story. This actually happened. And you know, stuff like this happens. It, this only this didn't only happen once. Stuff like this happens way too often. The girl, the poor girl in the outhouse, it's on page 12. 
So I'm going to read this. It's going to be quite um, disturbing. Uh, this is a, a story that Yvonne has read about in a newspaper and has uh, added it to his collection. This poor child of five, five-year-old girl, my daughter is six right now, so this hits home in a horrible way. This poor child of five. Everyone listening needs to imagine a five-year-old girl. They're so small. <laughs> you know, they're so small and vulnerable. This poor child of five was subjected to every possible torture by those cultivated parents. So her own parents did this to her. They beat her, thrashed her, kicked her for no reason till her body was one bruise. Then they went to greater refinements of cruelty, shut her up all night in the cold and frost in a privy, right, in an outhouse. And because she didn't ask to be taken up at night as though a child of five sleeping its angelic sound sleep should, could be trained to wake and ask, they smeared her face and filled her mouth with excrement. And it was her mother, her mother who did this. And that mother could sleep hearing the poor child's groans. Can you understand why a little creature who can't even understand what's done to her should beat her little aching heart with her tiny fist in the dark and the cold and weep her weak, unresentful tears to dear kind God to protect her? Do you understand that, friend and brother, you pious and humble novice? Do you understand why this infamy must be and is permitted? This is the point about Euclidean geometry. I can't fathom this. This does not compute for me. So he asks Alyosha, as you say, Elizabeth, if you were in charge of the universe and had to build this divine plan, what does Alyosha, what does Yvonne say exactly? He says, um, this is on page 16. Imagine that you are creating a fabric of human destiny with the object of making men happy in the end, giving them peace and rest at last, but that it was essential and inevitable to torture to death only one tiny creature that baby beating its breast with its fist, for instance, and to found that edifice on its unavenged tears, would you consent to be the architect on these conditions? Tell me and tell me the truth. No, I wouldn't consent, said Alyosha softly. So the man of faith even says, you've got me. This is not right or fair. Alyosha, there is no possible logical rebuttal that Alyosha could offer. What do you guys think? Do, 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 do you agree? I absolutely agree with that. I mean... It's not comprehensible because he says, what do I care about avenging them? What do I care in the end? Because they still suffered in that moment and that's not taken right. away. One of the quotes that stood out to most to me uh, is on page five, I believe. It's where Yvonne's talking and this, this is where your distinction that you made at the very beginning of this, that he's not actually atheist. He yeah. believes that God exists. And he says, I believe like a child that suffering will be healed and made up for, that all the humiliating absurdity of human contradictions will vanish like a pitiful mirage, like the despic despicable fabrication of the impotent and infinitely small Euclidean mind of man, that in the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass it will su suffice for all hearts, for the comforting of all resentments, for the atonement of all the crimes of humanity, of all the blood they've shed, that it will make it not only possible to forgive, but to justify all that has happened with men. But though all that may come to pass, I don't accept it. I won't accept it. Even if parallel lines do meet and I see it myself, I shall see it and say that they've met, but still I won't accept it. Yeah. I just really love the depth of character being portrayed here, I mm. guess. It's a very human contradiction to have that Yvonne can recognize and believe that, yeah, in the last days, everything will be made right, that things will things will work out for the better. He, he, he admits he believes that, but... Again, it, it, he looks around at the way things are now, and again, it comes back to, well, so what? Yeah. Sure, things will be better, but, but we have to deal with what we have to deal with to get there. And that poor child stuck outhouse and mouth stuffed with excrement, or the other story tells of a child cut out of the mother's womb, tossed up in the air, and caught on the end of the net in front of the mother's eyes. Yeah. If we live in a world where those things are possible, is it ever going to be worth it, regardless of how grand, how beautiful, how majestic the final reward may be? Yeah. I will see the justification and say, yes, that happened. it is justified. Those parallel lines have met, but it, I, I, I reject that it ever had to be this way. 
So he yeah. says, I'll give up my ticket. I'll give up my ticket. This is um, at the end of the rebellion section. This is his, this is what he means when he says it's not logical to live. He says, page 16, too high a price is asked for harmony. It's beyond our means to pay so much to enter on it. And so I hasten to give back my entrance ticket. He's born into this world. He looks around and sees the conditions of the world, sees the promises that are made to him and does the math and, and says, it's not worth it. So I'm going to give back my entrance ticket and leave this earth. I hasten to give back my entrance ticket. He's announcing that he's planning at some, some date to kill himself. And if I am an honest man, I am bound to give it back as soon as possible. And that I am doing. It's not God that I don't accept, Alyosha. Only I most respectfully return him the ticket. That's rebellion, murmured Alyosha. Um, okay, Alyosha is this monk. And even though he admits, yeah, no, I wouldn't found this cosmic order on the, on the tears of one child. He responds to Yvonne by saying, you said just now, is there a being in the whole world who would have the right to forgive and could forgive, but there is such a being and he can forgive everything, all and for all, because he gave his innocent blood for all and everything. You have forgotten him and on him is built the edifice and it is to him they cry aloud, thou art just, O Lord, for thy ways are revealed. Yvonne says, no, I haven't forgotten about him. In fact, I've written this poem, which we'll go into in 60 seconds. But Alyosha's answer is so insufficient, I find. I find it to be such an insufficient answer. Yvonne brings his evidence to the table, the tears of this five-year-old in the outhouse. Alyosha responds in saying, oh, but there is a person who gave his blood for these kinds of sins. The math doesn't add up. It's not an equivalent recompense. What would you have to say to my quite provocative take on Alyosha's answer? I don't think it's sufficient either. I mean, it might be true, but it's not a sufficient answer. Just because there's good or something good happens doesn't cancel out the fact that the bad already happened. So these kids are spending the, this present moment that at that time is like an eternal agony yeah. in that moment yeah. already that already happened. So to say, well, he made up for it and move on doesn't even kind of respond. <laughs> It's just a kind of band-aid. It's just a kind of rhetorical band-aid. Yeah. Liam, what are your thoughts? I, I feel like, yeah, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. And beyond even that, you know, the, the scriptures say it must needs be an infinite atonement, you know, but yeah. what, what, what does that mean? It's, it's the same sort of thing, like with, with this, with this non-Euclidean geometry, where That's even right. if we, even if we say that parallel lines meet, we can't envision that. That that makes no sense yeah. to our understanding of reality, and it's a it's more or less a similarly nonsensical statement to assert that this atonement is infinite or that anything is infinite because we are simply not equipped to handle that reality. Yes, uh, and as a result of that, I, I, I totally agree. Logically, it doesn't seem like it could work as a reputation. We're being asked to imagine a four-dimensional plane, and we can't do it. I mean, you know, this is something I've always tried to, I, I mean, I gave up a while ago because I realized how futile it was. What exactly are the mathematics of the atonement? How does this equation work? As a mathematical equation that looks like it doesn't work, Yvonne is right. It's imbalanced. It's totally imbalanced. So the, ra the rational brain, I mean, this is the underground man's contention, like the rational brain, only one twentieth of us is reason. And we'll see Zasima kind of embodying all those other 19ths of us. He gives us like a whole life. This is how we, this is how we should live in the face of Yvonne's arguments. Yvonne says, no, I haven't forgotten about him. In fact, I've written a poem, a poem in prose. It's called The Grand Inquisitor. Now let's pivot there. You know, the history I'm not uh, an expert on, Spanish Inquisition, but this was a time in which we see tyrannies coming up across this uh, course and across human history. The Iranian Revolution, we're going to go to uh, the, the gulags of Russia. We saw the French Revolution. You know, the Spanish Inquisition is an example of this, where heretics were burned, professions of faith were being extracted from people on the rack, etc. So Ivan imagines, I'm just setting it up a little bit, then I'll ask you a question. Ivan imagines this fantasy in which Christ comes back to Spain during the Inquisition and is going around teaching the people, you know, healing the sick like he always does. And the authorities, the Catholic authorities, capture him. They don't like this, so they capture him. And the Grand Inquisitor puts Christ into jail 
and says to him, your doctrines have actually caused more suffering. Let's walk through some of the, the Grand Inquisitor's contentions. What, in what ways, according to the Grand Inquisitor, do the doctrines of Christ actually increase the amount of suffering in the world? Where, where should we start in our answer to that question? trying to find it but i'm uh, reminded of the scene where the grand inquisitor is talking to christ and says like hey you remember those miracles that you did in your your 40 days of fasting how those make no sense in yeah let's context let's go through those miracles so for christ fast for 40 days in the wilderness and he is presented by satan with three temptations let's remind people listening what these temptations are. What is the first one? Turn the stone into bread. Yeah, that's the first one. Yep. Let's let's find this page. Turn stone into bread. Okay, let's go to 25. The three temptations of Satan are turn the stone into bread, jump, jump off this building so that all may see that so that the angels will catch you and all may see that you are favored of God. Very good. And what's the third? Behold all the kingdoms of the world, I will make them yours. Okay. And then the Grand Inquisitor says to Christ, for in those three questions, the whole subsequent history of mankind is, as it were, brought together into one whole and foretold. And in them are united all the unsolved historical contradictions of human nature. So he walks through Christ's refutation of these temptations and tries to persuade Christ that he was wrong to withstand the temptations of Satan. The first one is the bread. You see these stones, turn them into bread. Christ says, no. What is the Grand Inquisitor's argument? You should have turned them into bread. Why, according to the Grand Inquisitor? Men are too weak to choose something holy over something necessary, like bread. What are they supposed to do? They need bread, so they're not going to choose something else over that. Precisely. You can't expect virtue from starving people. Your first priority must be to fill their bellies, and then once their bellies are full, they can be capable of virtuous action. Yeah, I, I love the way that the Inquisitor expresses that at the bottom of page, maybe not the bottom, on page 26. Uh-huh. I don't know how page numbers work out. <laughs> he says, thou didst promise them the bread of heaven, but I repeat again, can it compare with earthly bread in the eyes of the weak, ever sinful, and ignoble race of man? Yeah. And if for the sake of the bread of heaven, thousands and tens of thousands shall follow thee, what is to become of the millions and tens of thousands of millions of creatures who will not have the strength to forgo the earthly bread for the sake of the heavenly? Mm-hmm. Or dost thou care only for the tens of thousands of the great and strong, while the millions, numerous as the sands of the sea, who are weak but love thee, must exist only for the sake of the great and strong? So we're thinking of Madame Defarge. I hope we're thinking of her. Uh, Marie Antoinette says, if they don't have bread, let them eat cake. They rise up into this sea. And even Dostoevsky is using this sea imagery, this ocean, this rising ocean imagery. So throughout human history, we have seen starving people act in unvirtuous ways. Doesn't the Grand Inquisitor have a point? Are you persuaded? I think to some degree. I mean, if we look at Tale of Two Cities and the French Revolution, like you said, they were starving and look what they did. But at the same time, if we look at Notes from Underground, Look how much he cares about his own freedom. And oh, well, say, say more about that. What do, you, what do you mean, Elizabeth? I mean, he's willing to not go to a doctor, even though his liver is diseased, because he wants to spite everyone, which is his expression of freedom, even though he doesn't right. believe in freedom because he's a terminist. But yeah. he's trying to have freedom, sacrificing these needs to have freedom, which is something a little bit of a higher order than bread. What assumptions about the nature of humans are the Inquisitor's arguments based on? How would he answer the question, what is human nature? Is he taking into account humans as they actually are in all of their dimensions? He says, feed them, this is a quote, feed them and then ask of them virtue. His assumption is that humans are not capable of virtuous action if their basic life level needs are not met. Is this a true assumption? Are you arguing, Elizabeth, that the underground man is some some kind of proof that we can actually defy or act against our own self-interests or transcend hunger. We can actually transcend hunger. We can transcend pain and do things that assert our agency and our freedom. Is that what I hear you arguing? To some degree. I mean, it's impossible to say everyone always can because we can't, we're not perfect, but I think we're complex enough to at times have the capacity or desire to do that. So, yeah, I don't know, Liam, if you would agree, is the, is the Grand Inquisitor selling human capacity too short? 
I, th- I think this is like the ultimate expression of the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, where I think he is selling it short, but maybe not as short as we would like to believe. Okay. Because I, 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 do th- I do think there comes a point where your the requirements of the flesh are so demanding that they cannot be ignored. <laughs> if I'm stuck in traffic and can't get to dinner, me, yeah, keep going, Liam. <laughs> yeah, just just like asceticism can only go so far before it completely escapes the bounds which these mortal bodies, this this mortal coil, if if you're Hamlet, uh, before yes. it escapes the bounds which you know which would deal with. Yeah, I, I I think he underestimates how far humanity can be pushed before we hit that breaking point. But I do believe that there's a breaking point beyond okay. which it doesn't, beyond which the spirit cannot overpower the, cannot overpower the body, at least not without divine help. But not uh, delving into that. <laughs> well, maybe I mean I I mean this is you just you just prompted me to do a King Lear shout out, at least not without divine help. Remember Albany's statement: "Unless heavenly spirits descend, man." I'm slightly paraphrasing. Unless heavenly spirits descend, mankind must needs prey upon itself like monsters of the deep. So perhaps mon- perhaps humanity is monsters of the deep that preys upon themselves, except for, except we, this, I don't know, we, we, we do do this from time to time. Human societies do devolve into chaos and tyranny. And perhaps the only reason why this isn't the permanent and perpetual condition of mankind is, is because we get heavenly intervention from time to time. Let's ask this question. We, we haven't got to the other, the other two um, temptations here, but one of the reasons why this text has become so famous is because Dostoevsky seems to predict the totalitarian mindset. The Grand Inquisitor is a kind of proto-totalitarian. He thinks he knows a way to exert ultra control over a society, give them everything that they need in order to control them, and maintain a kind of permanent peace. Yes, we might have to lie to them. Yes, we might have to partially enslave them, but we can maintain peace. Here is a question. If Liam is right to say, and I think you are, Liam, that there is a breaking point for individuals and for societies, that you cannot expect starving people to main, maintain virtue into an eternity, how should we organize our societies? This is a hard question. What does this text teach us about the way we should deal with poverty, with need, with want? I think this is Yvonne's response to that. Yvonne says, well, there's suffering, so this is the only way to prevent it, is through a state like the one the Grand Inquisitor is making. I think the response to that is in what we're reading next, Father Zasima's teaching, this idea of making yourself responsible for everyone, and in concrete love rather than just abstract love for humanity, trying to fix everything. Yeah. it's hard to come up with a way to order a state around that, but it's certainly not totalitarian. Excellent point, Elizabeth. This reminds me of something Yvonne says. Right at the beginning of chapter four, Rebellion, I have. I must make you one confession, Yvonne began. I can never understand how one can love one's neighbors. It's not just one's neighbors, to my mind, that one can't love, though one might love those at a distance, et cetera, et cetera. For anyone to love a man, he must be hidden. For as soon as he shows his face, love is gone. <laughs> I laugh because it's partly true, you know. It's easy to love humanity in its abstract, and then your neighbor is mowing his lawn at five in the morning, you know, and you just want to throw something, you know what I mean? Loving individual humans is much, much harder than loving abstract groups. And Zosima seems to focus his attention on individuals, and Yvonne seems to focus his attention on abstract groups. This is telling. If, If you're trying to solve these problems on the level of the abstract group, it's so hard to escape this temptation of tyranny. On the top of page 30, he kind of chastises Christ for not becoming a tyrant. He says, the Grand Inquisitor says, and so unrest, confusion, and unhappiness, that is the present lot of man after thou didst bear so much for their freedom. So you should have taken away their freedom and given them bread. I'm, so on, on the uh, political compass, I guess, I position myself down on libertarian left. You know, free agency is so important. Yeah. Uh, every, everybody needs to have the right to to make their own choice. That is a fundamental truth, at, le- at least in my opinion. And I don't know if there's that many people who would disagree with me on that. 
But on the other side of things, you have the problem where people more often than not, at least in Yvonne's view, will make choices that do not fit well with the greater good. And this is where, you know, government is, at least in theory, is supposed to step in and say, like, well, okay, you can make your own choices, but you can't make that choice. That choice is is no bueno. Yeah. And I wish so very sincerely that our, our spirits were spirits of sufficient virtue that we could be left entirely to our own devices and that we would end up with a world without suffering where there is no poverty, where people could eat and be, be all right. Uh, but the fact of the matter remains that that isn't the world in which we live. Yeah. And in order to get closer to it, I don't know if there is a better way than what the Grand Inquisitor is describing, although maybe he takes it to an extreme where we do need somebody to step in and say, all right, this is how this is how we're going to regulate this. You get this, you get that, you get that, because otherwise you get hoarding going on and people just doing things that maybe are good for themselves but not good for the collective. Or maybe even, according to the underground man, not even good for themselves. You know what I mean? So he says, this is a very great comment, Liam. Go to page 32. His indictment of Christ continues. They will be convinced that we are right. So he's like, let's team up, you and me, and we can govern these people. You know, we can we can create this authoritarian state. They will be convinced that we are right, for they will remember the horrors of slavery and confusion to which thy freedom brought them. If you let people be free, Liam, yeah, they're going to act in ways that are that are bad and dumb and that enslave themselves and enslave each other. You know, there are certain countries that just let people take any drugs they want. And there are many persuasive arguments. Maybe we should just let that happen. Maybe we shouldn't, you know? So where do you put the battle? How do you do the fine tuning? What do you regulate and what do you not regulate? This is not an easy question. It's like an infinite number of questions that we need to find the balancing line on. They will remember the horrors of slavery and confusion to which thy freedom brought them. Freedom, free thought, and science will lead them into such straits and will bring them face to face with such marvels and insoluble mysteries that some of them, the fierce and rebellious, will destroy themselves. Others, rebellious but weak, will destroy one another, while the rest, weak and unhappy, will crawl fawning to our feet and whine to us, you you were right, you alone possess his mystery, and we come back to you. Save us from ourselves." Save us from ourselves. How much saving from ourselves do we need? It's, we can't come up with something to answer that. No, we can't. You know, Ivan is, is all this ammunition is like, poor Alyosha, imagine him. He's just sitting there like, yeah, I guess. We haven't talked about the other two temptations. Maybe we should. I see time starting to uh, unwind here. Do we have anything to say about the other two temptations do those add anything to this, this discussion that we haven't talked about yet? Why is the Inquisitor saying that Christ was wrong to reject those two actions? I think he's clarifying and adding to his argument, just proving people need, is it, I think, miracle, mystery, and authority. And so each miracle or temptation, I guess, adds a piece to his argument of yeah. how Christ didn't give them that. We can't go on faith. You didn't give us enough evidence. So what do you expect? Yes, something I find particularly striking at my soul about this argument, I really enjoy the idealistic view of mankind portrayed in Star Trek, Mm. um, where we've all unified together, we're working together for a common purpose, there is no poverty, there is no sadness, like... Everybody is together. We are a unified front of mankind. And I was, it really caused me to reflect on that ideal and that hope of mine when the Inquisitor says on page 31, mankind as a whole has always striven to organize a universal state. There have been many great nations with great histories, but the more highly they were developed, the more unhappy they were. For they felt more acutely than other people the craving for worldwide union. The great conquerors, Tamerlanes and Genghis Khans, whirled like hurricanes over the face of the earth, striving to subdue its people. And they too were but the unconscious expression of the same craving for universal unity. 
hadst thou, uh, here he's still speaking to Christ, hadst thou taken the world and Caesar's purple, thou wouldst have founded the universal state and have given universal peace. For who can rule men if not he who holds their conscience and their bread in his hands? That was just really a shock to me to consider that, like, yeah, if, if, if Christ had done that, perhaps it very well, like, you know, we, we think of this as, as a temptation to power. Like, that, 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 that's what we generally take away from yes. that temptation. Satan's going to Christ and saying, hey, I will give you all the power in the world if you, if you subject yourself to me. Yeah. But what we don't often think about is that there's also, for Christ specifically, being who he was, there's also this side temptation of, given that power, I could make everything right. I could make all of this pain and suffering that I know I'm going to have to deal with eventually in the Garden of Gethsemane. I, I can make that all go away yeah. and never happen in the first place. It's going to be better for everybody. It's going to be better for me because I won't have yeah. to deal with it much when I go and do the atonement. And the Inquisitor is saying, like, you made the wrong choice there. And reading his argument, especially with that. I guess, idealistic view of humanity that Gene Roddenberry promotes, Yeah, I totally see where he's coming from, which is just like vastly concerning to me on a personal level. I love Star Trek too. I love it for its optimism. It fills me with hope. It, it convinces me, maybe, maybe we could. And then I read Dostoevsky. <laughs> no, you're, you're probably right, Dostoevsky. Just a little bit up from where you read, Liam, he's talking to Christ, then we shall plan the universal happiness of man. But thou mightest have taken even then the sword of Caesar. Why didst thou reject that last gift? Hadst thou ac accepted that last counsel of the mighty spirit, he's referring to Satan here, you could hear the language, crazy. Thou wouldst have accomplished all that man seeks on earth, that is, someone to worship, someone to keep his conscience, and some means of uniting all in one unanimous and harmonious ant heap, for the craving of universal unity is the third and last anguish of men. Humans want three things, someone to worship, Someone to keep his conscience, I think I take that to mean, tell me what's right and wrong, and I'll just do what you say, so I don't have to think for myself. And unity, I want to, be, I want to feel like I belong to a group. Yeah, we, won't, we don't like being exiled or outcasts. I think the word uniting there is very key. The Soviet Union is called the Soviet Union because they had a vision of unifying their collective. They collectivized the farmers. This book was written in, well, it was published in 1880, so I don't know exactly how many years before Stalin comes to power, this book was published, something like 50, 50-ish, give or take, 50 years before Stalin comes to power. He's predicting exactly what Stalin does. He takes control of the farms, the wheat, the bread, starves people, because, he, because Stalin knows that if you hold the bread, you hold everything. The Grand Inquisitor is saying to Christ, we, you, could have, you could have done it, but as Liam is saying, and made it good. You know, You could have fixed all of these problems. Let's talk about the ending here. This long tirade, the Grand Inquisitor, this long tirade. What is Christ's response and how do you react? Well, he kisses him and lets him be. I mean, he is respecting this man's freedom to do what he thinks is best. This passage shows more than anything I've ever read how much he did for our freedom. And when I've read other things by Dostoevsky, to him, freedom is essential to any sort of meaningful existence because if mm. we don't have freedom, like in Notes from Underground, all you can do is sit idly by with your arms crossed in inertia. There's no point to anything without yeah. freedom. So when Christ kisses him, it's in this section, his final act of allowing us our freedom and allowing our meaning in existing uh, I love that. Freedom is so important to him that he will even, him, I say Dostoevsky, he will even imagine hurting his own liver just to be free. He will imagine Christ saying, I let you, to the, to the Inquisitor, I let you... I'm not going to refute this. If that, I, 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 I don't know what word to use. You've done a better job than me, Elizabeth. I allow your individuality. I honor it. I love it. I love it because it's a kiss. You know, not only do I allow it, I love it. I'll kiss you. And you know? that comes even after the Inquisitor says, like, perhaps you want to hear it from my mouth. We serve him, not you. <laughs> wow. <laughs> like you know him being him being the devil yeah and even after that we still get this scene where christ kisses him and says as you say i i love that you have taken this individuality upon yourself but what it, so i 
half of my brain is in love with that response. Christ's loving the, the individual human, the face, instead of an abstract concept, humanity. And loving a human face, loving a particular human who has been, should we say, not quite deserving of this love. Yeah. But the other half of me thinks, no, I want, I want him to talk back. Why don't we get to hear Christ speak? Why don't we get to hear Christ saying, yes, but have you considered this? He is conspicuously silent. It's not a particularly deep answer, but I feel like at least part of it might be that Dostoevsky didn't feel worthy to put words in Christ's mouth. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, be surprised if that was a part of it. Piggybacking on your answer, perhaps he doesn't feel like he needs to because it's all there. Just read the New Testament. You know, it's it, that is the that is the that document contains. I don't want to use the word refutation because it's not a refutation. That document contains the rebuttal. Other side, the what? The rebuttal, maybe slightly yeah, better The enacted rebuttal. It's because it's not a logical rebuttal. You know. I think part of it. Yvonne's writing this. Yvonne. Oh, let's not forget that. Yeah this <laughs> yes so, keep going if he agrees with the grand inquisitor he must disagree with christ though i'm yvonne doesn't exactly believe everything he says he only half believes anything he says in the whole book i think but if he agrees with the grand inquisitor even at all what kind of response is he gonna make if right. that makes sense you say more about w- what ways yvonne might only half believe himself and then yeah say more about why th- this is yvonne's poem we can't forget that so Yvonne might have his own reasons for not choosing or not being able to speak on behalf of Christ. So in terms of Yvonne only half believing anything he says, anytime he speaks like this, he's laughing through part of it. He introduces that ridiculous. In a later part of the book, some of his ideas kind of get repeated back to him. And he's just ashamed of them. He's so embarrassed. In the beginning of the book, Father Zasima is talking to him. He says, you, you toyed these ideas out of despair. You don't fully believe them. And he says, no, I don't believe them completely, but I'm also not completely joking. When was the last time when was the last time you read this book? I mean you so you've read the whole Brothers Karamazov. Sounds like it's fresh it's fresh in your mind. Last semester I took the class on Dostoevsky at BYU. No way. That's so (laughs) great. That's so cool. It was pretty great. I love this book so much. (laughs) So great, yeah. Yeah. Um I mean his whole being through the entire book is conflicted about these questions. He hasn't made up his mind. At the end of the book, he he's just trying to figure out what in the world he can do. So when he presents these ideas, when he says he agrees with the Grand Inquisitor, he doesn't know if he agrees. He's laughing through it. Um, Excellent. And then in terms of why he wouldn't write words for Christ, I mean, part of it would be if he agrees with the Grand Inquisitor, first of all, how is he supposed to come up with a response to that? Yeah. If he thinks that's right, how is he going to prove it wrong? <laughs> and second of all, if he only half agrees with the Grand Inquisitor and he thinks maybe Christ is right, the response is built into it with Christ's suffering and decisions to promote mm-hmm. her. That's already built into the Grand Inquisitor and the New Testament. Excellent. Alyosha, so this, this section ends with Alyosha getting up. Alyosha's kind of in a daze. He has no way of really responding, you know? He says to Yvonne, but the, the, the little sticky leaves, we're going to talk about leaves and birds in the next section. Like, but don't forget about those sticky little leaves. I love that. You know, there are reasons for staying on this earth. And those reasons are include leaves on trees. You know, it's so full of small, precious beauty. Alyosha got up. This is the very end. Alyosha got up, went to him, and kissed him softly on the lips. That's plagiarism, cried Yvonne. <laughs> Highly delighted. Another instance of Yvonne joking. You stole that from my poem. Thank you, though. Get up, Alyosha. It's time we were going, both of us. So all I would add, I see it's time. All I would add to the great things that both of you have said is that there is no, yes, this is Yvonne's poem, so why would he present a counter-argument? Because he he wants to argue the Grand Inquisitor's side, not Christ's side. But he's kind of accidentally illustrating what what we will see next, that the only possible response to these logical arguments is an embodied response, action. It's a way of living. So it's not words, it's not ideas, it's not thoughts. I I see your thought and I raise you this other thought. It's I I, I hear you and I will move in this certain way through the world. I will perform these certain actions. The rebuttal that we're going to see from Father Zasima is embodied behavior, action. It's a way of living. I think the kiss, the action of the kiss is a great symbol for this. 
Thank you for a great chat. Bye. Bye. Because the quote of the day earlier in this recording was so long, the poem of the day is going to be very small. It's this tiny yet wonderful little poem by Anna Akhmatova called He Loved Three Things Alone. He loved three things alone, white peacocks, even song, old maps of America. He hated children crying and raspberry jam with his tea and womanish hysteria. And yet he married me. So that's it for now. Next up, I'll be chatting with Bailey and Michaela about the remainder of The Grand Inquisitor, a section that does not really offer a logical refutation to Ivan Karamazov's arguments, but yet which is necessarily a kind of second half to this story and presents if not a rhetorical counter-argument, a lived and embodied one. In the meantime, keep reading, and keep enjoying the readings. Mm-hmm.